Good morning. So glad to see everybody here. Um, we have been in our series, um, Where is God? And we have been going through the book of Habakkuk in the last two weeks. Kenny has preached on Habakkuk 1 and Habakkuk 2. And today we will be in Habakkuk 3. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, that's where we'll be. Um, I know that can be a little bit difficult to find. It's in the prophets in the Old Testament, um, but it'll help. If you will go to the book of Matthew in my Bible, if I go to Matthew, which is the first book of the Old Te- or the New Testament rather, and I turn back in the Old Testament about 45 pages, I'm, I'm in Habakkuk. So that gives you kind of a reference there. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to review a little bit of Habakkuk 1 and 2 first, not to add to anything that Kenny said or take away from it, but just because Habakkuk 3 is a very dense chapter. It's, there's a lot of spiritual and emotional gravity to it, and it, it helps to understand what is happening leading up to that. And so it's not even going to be on your screen as we review because we're just going to look at a couple of verses just to get kind of the outline of what's going on. So we start off Habakkuk 1, and the first thing it says is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, oracle comes from a Greek word that meant burden. So what it's saying is that this burden that Habakkuk saw, this thing that he saw that was very heavy on his heart. And this question, as we'll, we'll find out, or this thing that's heavy on his heart and he's kind of asking God about, or my heading for the next section is actually his complaint. So he's complaining to God about, is he sees Israel suffering at the hands of the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians. And the Chaldeans are this nation that are, They're still kind of growing. They're not totally developed yet, but already they're a very strong nation. They continue to grow in numbers. And as they do, the persecution of the Israelites at their hands increases. And Habakkuk sees this, and he's really burdened by this. And so we see in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, that essentially what he's asking God is, why are you letting these things happen to your people and they're going unpunished? Why are you letting these, these terrible people, these Chaldeans, do things and it seems like you aren't even watching? He says in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? And then in verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? He's kind of calling out God. He's saying, why are you being passive? Are you not paying attention? Where are you at? And the Lord answers him in verses 5 through 11. And, you know, he's kind of responding to this, this last thing that Habakkuk said right there. So Habakkuk said, verse 4, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And what he means when he says justice never goes forth, he means the precedent that God has set for justice, true godly justice. But then he says, justice goes forth perverted. And what does he mean by that? He means this. In verse seven, he says, or God says in his response, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. And then skip a little bit more to verse 11. He says, then they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose might is their God. So what has happened is as the Chaldeans have grown and become a mighty nation, They have come to replace God with themselves. And so their form of justice that they are carrying out is not true justice, it's their justice. And so it's perverted. Or anytime you see the word perverted in scripture, it means twisted. It means it's been taken away from its original intended purpose. And so God responds 
to Habakkuk's question, are you not paying attention? Where are you at? And he responds by saying, I'm not being passive. Verse six, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. He says, I'm not being passive. I'm actively using my hand to raise them up. I'm not being passive at all. And I know, he, he knows who they are because immediately after that, he says, that bitter and hasty nation. He's not confused. He knows exactly what he's doing and why. And then in verses 12 through 17, the, the very end of chapter one, Habakkuk kind of has his second question or his second complaint. And he's kind of developed from the question, he's moved on from the question of why are bad things happening? Because we see first thing in verse 12, he says, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my, o Lord, my God, my holy one, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. So he's come to understand that the reason these things are happening is because Israel has disobeyed God as they do more often than not in the Old Testament. They have disobeyed God. They have not been obedient to his voice. And so they are under God's judgment. And Habakkuk has come to understand that. He's kind of moved past that point. But now the question that he's asking, if you'll look in verse 13, he says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? He says that again, why do you idly look? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Okay, so now he's, I think we see more of his true heart to begin with because he's moved on from the why are bad things happening and he's kind of moved on to this, um, you know, we ask the question today, why do bad things happen to good people? This is more of why are bad things happening to not as bad people? You know, we're not good. I just admitted, you know, we deserve judgment, but we're not as bad as they are. They're a lot more wicked than us. And so he's kind of, again, he's saying, do you even, do you even know who they are? Do you recognize that you're making us suffer at the hands of an evil, wicked nation? And in chapter two, verses two through 20, God answers him and God says to him that he knows exactly who the Chaldeans are. He says to him that in verse four, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. So he's looking at the Chaldeans and he says, I know what the standard of righteousness is because I'm God and I set that standard. I was the one who set the precedent. And I know for a fact that they aren't it. He says, I know how wicked they are. And before we go kind of to the rest of God's response and then into chapter three, which is our, our subject for today, I want us to do something. I want us to kind of take what I'm gonna call our church mask off because we like to do this thing and we don't like to do it just at church, but we do it especially at church where we come in here and we kind of try to act like we've got it together or at least we're not totally falling apart, maybe just a little bit. We only like to let people in on the things that we're willing to let people in on. But I, I don't really, I want us to kind of get rid of that and, and not be your typical, I guess what you would call church person right now. I just want us to be the sinners that are saved by God that we are, okay? 
I look at our world today, and I imagine many of you do too, and I have no clue what's going on. I look around and I feel like I don't even recognize the world that I'm looking at. Not that I'm, I'm better or that I don't sin, and, but I just look around and I'm like, what in the world, literally, what in the world is this? Things are happening every day that I can't explain. I don't know why they're happening. I don't know what the solution is. And even, especially the past couple months with everything going on, I'll be real with you, I've had moments where I've been paralyzed in fear because I didn't know what my role was, what my responsibility was, where I fit into the narrative, and I didn't know what to do, and so I just froze. I felt totally overwhelmed and hopeless. But yet, I look at so many people that I know that I know for a fact are not following after God. They don't care anything about God, and they seem to have it together. They've got anything they could ask for, or at least they've got more than I do, right? They've got so much more than, than you know, my Christian friends and family and some of you that I look at who are dealing with health problems and broken relationships and debt and, and, and mental uh, illness and, and anything that's going on. And it almost seems at times like God is kind of casting us aside. I don't guess that's a a proper thing to say, but I'm just going to be real because I think we all think it. It seems like God's kind of going, yeah, I'm not worried about y'all anymore. And you start to ask the question, where is God? Or at least where is he in this situation? In the late 19th century, the late 1800s, there was a German philosopher and atheist named Friedrich Nietzsche. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of him. He's very famous. He popularized the phrase in that time, God is dead. And what he meant was that there was a, not even an atheist necessarily, but a secular wave that was moving through the world society that was actually removing the idea of God from morality, and he, he loved this because, again, I mean, it was removing God from the equation in his eyes. But he said this would do something really interesting. In the 20th century, he said two things would happen. First of all, he said the world would slip into this, what he called a universal chaos. And then he said that more blood would be shed in the 20th century than any other century in history. And I just want to read off some facts to you real quick. I got these from... Um, Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias, and he said, in the 17th century, 3.3 million people were killed in formal warfare in Europe. In the 18th century, that number rose to 5.2 million. In the 19th century, it rose to 5.5 million. And in the 20th century, only up through the 1970s, the 20th century being the century that Friedrich Nietzsche predicted these things to happen, Europe saw 28 million people die of formal warfare. And if you add in the massacres that occurred in China and Russia, that number rises up to over 150 million people. More people in the world were murdered in the 20th century than every other previous century combined. And Friedrich Nietzsche not only got these predictions correct, but he 
said the reason that this was going to happen. He said, because removing God from morality, the idea of God, does create an interesting dilemma. He said, what it does, removing God from morality, is it creates no consistent source, no consistent compass for which is up or down, meaning right or wrong. And so what would happen is if there's no consistent source, if there's no God to dictate what that is, we would be left up to ourselves. And when you remove God from your sense of morality and replace him with yourself and you are playing God and you come into contact with someone else who is playing God and your views on something differ, there's going to be a natural elimination process that takes place. So in other words, Habakkuk 1, 7, and 11, when we become our God, justice as we see it is not true justice. It becomes perverted and twisted, and that's what we see in the world today. Everybody is looking after justice, but there seems to be very few who actually understand what that really is and how that comes about. But God, in the second part of his second response to Habakkuk, continues to remind him that he knows exactly who the Chaldeans are, but that he is going to bring forth true justice in his time. And then he says something at the very end of chapter 2 that I, I imagine it, it totally rocked Habakkuk. I know it, it uh, rocked me. He said, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He said, I'm not gone anywhere. Nobody has taken my throne and replaced me. Maybe they did in their heart, but I'm still God and I'm in my holy temple on my throne where I have always been. And so we see Habakkuk's change of focus in chapter three. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. He said, God, I know what you can do. I've heard about it over centuries and what you've done Take out wrath on our enemies. But he says, in wrath, remember mercy. In other words, show them the wrath they deserve. Show us mercy as your people. And then verses three through 15 are so beautiful. It's like poetry. He's talking about God and who God has shown himself to be. He says, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. 
His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kashan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flashing of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. He gives this beautiful account of what he has heard of God doing century after century after century of delivering his people from their oppression, how he split the waters and then he's, he's made them to, to come upon their enemies and drown their enemies and how he's hung the moon and the sun in place and made them stand still in battle. He's done all these things. And then he says in verse 16, he looks around at what he sees and Israel's going through and he feels it like rottenness in his bones. And he says his legs can't even hold him up without trembling. But then he says, yet... I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And it's a beautiful picture of what Habakkuk sees and what he knows God can do. And yet he says, I will quietly wait for you to do what you have said you will do. The Disney Channel loving part of us, and I'm not knocking Disney, I like it too, but the, the, the Disney part of our mind, what we want to see is this happily ever after ending, right? Where eventually, maybe after a little while, God does defeat the Chaldeans and Habakkuk sees this and him and the rest of Israel feast and they sing and they praise God and they cry out. But that doesn't happen. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The oracles, these, these oracles of Habakkuk took place around 620 BC. And the completion of the judgment of Israel at the hands of the Chaldeans was kind of completed, fully took place about 20 to 40 years later. But the Chaldeans did not fall until 539 AD, over a thousand years later. Habakkuk 
breathed his last breath and went to his grave quietly waiting for the Lord to do what he said he would do. And I look around at my life today or at the things going on and I think what kind of hope did Habakkuk have that was so strong, it was a rock that was so solid that when the wind and the waves of persecution and suffering and sin knocked against him, he could stand firm until the very day that he died knowing that even if he didn't see it, God was gonna do what he said he would do. What is the hope and how do I have it? And I would imagine many of you will ask the same question but we already have it. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Why does it matter that the word became flesh? What significance does that hold to us as a Christian? It holds this, Romans 8. Starting in verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful flesh, but he was flesh. He was the likeness of sinful flesh because sinful flesh weakened the law so that the righteous requirement could not be fulfilled. But because he condemned sin in the flesh, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us through him who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The hope that we have is the same hope that Habakkuk had. It's the same reason that Frederick Nietzsche could get his predictions right, but that even though society tried to remove God from morality, God could not die and did not die. And actually, even today, as the church is persecuted internationally, the church continues to grow. The hope is that God is not an idea or a philosophy. He is real. And what happened 2,000 years ago on a cross was that the real Son of God who came and actually became flesh his real flesh was nailed to a real cross and his actual heart stopped beating and his body actually died. But then on the third day, it wasn't a myth, it wasn't a legend. His real heart started beating again and his real eyes opened and his real feet hit the ground and walked out of the grave so that we can trust in something that is just as real as your skin right here. And that's what Habakkuk's hope was. And that's what he's saying in chapter three, verses three through 15. He's giving an account again and again and again of how God made himself known to his people to be real and to be really working. And so the justice that he promised was not an idea. It was real. And because of that, it was really coming. And our justice is really coming. And that was the hope. 
So Christian, let me leave you with this. As the world seemingly slips more and more into chaos, and it, it, it is, it's slipping more and more into chaos, it is not because God is losing control or he's not paying attention or he doesn't hear or see what's happening. It is because day by day, your enemy, the devil, is becoming more frantic. Because what happened 2,000 years ago on a cross is that the real son of God really died and really came back to life and put a price on the devil's head that he knows he will have to pay one day. And so every second that passes is another second that he's running out of time. And so we do not have to be overwhelmed and we do not have to be hopeless. We can take heart because there will come a day when he will really come back. And so this time that we're going through, as confusing as it is and how diffi as difficult as it is, it is not because God has lost control or has overwhelmed himself. He is still in his holy temple on his throne where he has always been and he has not lost one iota of control. He is using this time to set the stage. That is the hope that we have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your real hope that is not based on an idea that someone created. It's, it's not based on even simply stories that are passed down. Those stories came from somewhere. Those stories became stories because they were things that truly happened where you made yourself known to be real. And so this morning, there are many of us in here who have lived our whole lives treating you like an idea, like a philosophy, like you are something that we are supposed to use to make ourselves better people. But the difference between you and, and, and every other God is that you did not come to make bad people good, you came to make dead people alive. And this morning, as we've talked about Habakkuk and as we've talked about the word coming down and becoming flesh and the significance that that is to us because in doing that, you fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law that we could not help us to live by that. Knowing that you came in the flesh and you will return in the flesh and that you will give us new flesh. Do that in our hearts this morning. Forgive us of the many ways that we've doubted you and disobeyed your voice and not listened to you. And be our peace in everything that we do. Thank you for your love for us, Father. In your son's name we pray.